You are listening to This World of Humans, a science podcast focusing on the interface of biology and social science. Coming to you from the podcast recording studio at John Jay College in New York City. For more information about today's topic, visit visionlearning.com slash TWOH. Hello, and welcome to This World of Humans. I'm your host, Nathan Lentz. Your producer is Sam Anderson, and today we are going to talk about hippos. Cool. What about them? They're poop. Excuse me? Yeah, you asked. Uh, There's a new study that looks at the effect of hippo dung on downstream ecology because, all jokes aside, it's a pretty serious issue. Keep in mind that hippos are not only huge, but they're also vegetarian, which means they have a really high volume, high fiber, high fiber diet, which means that they generate a lot of excrement. Uh, in fact, a hippo can defecate 100 pounds in a day. That is a lot of poop. It is a lot. And what makes matters worse is that many of the rivers that they live in are being drastically altered by human encroachment uh, and also by climate change. So rivers that could previously absorb all of that dung are now being diverted. Lots of the water, both up and downstream from the hippos, is being used for agriculture and other human needs. And this, uh, like the reduction in flow, is making the dung problem a whole lot worse. So it's kind of like a sewer system backing up? Yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like. And here to talk about this is one of the authors of this study, Dr. Keenan Steers, a researcher at the University of California at Santa Barbara, who is joining us by Skype. Uh, By the way, this study appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and the paper is titled, Effects of the Hippopotamus on the Chemistry and Ecology of a Changing Watershed. Okay, Professor Steers, uh, welcome to the show. And I I understand you are interested in river ecology, but what got you interested in hippos specifically? Well, hippos, as you've mentioned, are um, very big animals. Um, There hasn't been a lot of research that's actually focused specifically on the effects that they are having. And um, as you mentioned, they, they feed a lot every night. So they actually cross um, ecosystem boundaries, being semi-aquatic. They move from aquatic environments where they spend most of their day defecating in, in, in water. And then they move on to um, terrestrial landscape to uh, feed during the day. And because they feed so much because of their size, they are moving huge amounts of organic material across these ecosystem boundaries. So we really wanted to look at um, the effect that this is having on um, the aquatic ecosystem. Oh, I see. Because everybody has kind of really looked at um, or has this general perception that hippos are moving huge amounts of nutrients, but no one's really actually quantified the effect that these nutrients can actually have on these um, the aquatic system and the chemistry and the ecology. I, I knew that hippos were vegetarian, that they ate grasses and things, but I guess I assumed they were in the water. But it sounds like what you're telling me, the grass they eat is on the land, but then they go into the water and that's where they uh, defecate. So they're actually moving a lot of nutrients and organic material from a terrestrial landscape in, in that habitat into the water. Do I have that right? Yes, that is correct. So these river ecosystems have obviously grown up around all these hippos and their dung. So the issue now, uh, what's changed is the effect of human impact on the rivers. Um, Humans are well known for making huge alterations in ecosystems. And when it comes to rivers, one of the biggest ways we change them is simply by diverting the flow of water for our own use. Is that correct? Rivers do experience kind of natural variation in in flow. Um, And as you mentioned, the human aspect of this is removing a lot of this water which is significantly altering this flow and so when hippos are in their pools and they and they end up defecating when there's flow 
the flow can kind of uh, remove a lot of this veg- um, buildup of dung. So there is, so it doesn't actually result in a buildup. Um, and a lot of it gets naturally broken down, it's consumed by um, fish, aquatic invertebrates, and is also removed downstream. But as soon as you start um, fundamentally altering that, that flow, you're really cutting off this cleaning out um, effect where there's fresh water coming into the pool, you know, diluting all the dung and removing this dung. And as soon as you start um, removing that where there's no fresh water coming into these pools or limited fresh water coming into these pools, it causes there to be a, a significant buildup of this um, dung where it can't be broken down naturally or the inputs are much higher than what can nat- be broken down naturally. There's no um, flow or little flow going out of these pools that prevents a lot of this um, dung from being moved downstream as well. So it results in a uh, quite a large buildup. And what, when you actually look at these pools, it's very easy to see that there's, a, there's been a huge buildup. There's just a, uh, a mat of dung on the top of the surface of, this, of these pools. So the water becomes completely saturated. Gross. Yeah, that does sound pretty gross. And I mean, I don't want to be crude about this, but what eventually happens to all that dung? I mean, it's got to go somewhere. And we know, of course, from other studies of ecology, we know that one animal's waste is another's feast. Is that eventually what happens in this case also? Are there microorganisms and other scavengers that, uh, you know, sort of go a little wild with all this? Yes. So what we found is that there was um, huge sparks in the nutrient concentration and a huge amount and um, a lot of uh, bacterial respiration that caused this huge decline in um, dissolved oxygen concentrations. And most of these pools, um, we found these high-density hippo pools, um, the oxygen concentrations um, fell below um, lethal levels for a lot of fish species. So we found a lot of um, fish species actually dying, and that's resulted in um, a huge drop in the diversity of these um, fish. So it's sort of like an algae bloom. Yes, Yes, it's exactly the same kind of process that's occurring. Okay, Dr. Sear, so I understand this study was actually conducted in Tanzania uh, in the Ruaha National Park, and we're looking at specifically the Great Ruaha River. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that is correct, the Great Ruaha River. And uh, in this part of Africa, they don't really have the four-season year like we have in North America and Europe. It would be more of rainy and dry season. Is that right? Yes. So they have kind of a bimodal rainy season. Okay. So how do you go about this kind of research? What are you measuring here and how can you connect it back to human impact on river flow? Okay. So I'll just start off with a little bit of background about uh, the Great Roha River. Historically, it used, it used to be a, a perennial river. It used to flow throughout the year, um, having its natural um, peaks during the, the flooding season, with, during the rainy season, which would naturally then decline. But there would always be flow throughout the river. But now, since about 1993, the rivers stopped flowing completely during the dry season. So you have these distinct isolated pools um, during the peak of the dry season. And for us, that provides a really cool opportunity to start looking at the effects, you know, that river flow and especially altered river flow um, because of humans can have on, on the system. So the two important things that we wanted to look at was obviously hippo densities. Um, so we had to go and across this, the, the river, try and find pools that had high density hippos as well as low density of hippos. So we can tease apart um, the, the effects that hippos are having on the ecology and the chemistry of these rivers. And then also do it across different seasons. So we could do it across um, the wet season when the river's flowing to see what happens. We can look at these different densities. And then again, go and replicate the same kind of experimental design in the peak of the dry season across these diff- different hippo densities, but now in a completely altered environment where there's no, no flow at all. So the first step was really 
we found now the, the perfect field site, which was this river. If we could answer all the questions that we really wanted to. The next step was finding suitable pools that actually maintained hippos throughout the um, throughout the year. The last thing you want to start doing is start studying hippos and they get up and they leave the pool that you're busy studying. It, that complicates things quite a bit. So we spent a bit of time choosing the right pools um, that had high density of hippos, low density of hippos. And then we wanted to look at um, the water chemistry. So we collected a whole bunch of different water chemistry variables. Most importantly, um, was oxygen dissolved oxygen concentrations, you know, a lot of fish, aquatic invertebrates, all, all they need oxygen to uh, survive. So that was a very important variable. And then also just to link um, hippo nutrients as the driver of this, or hippo dung as the driver, we looked at a whole bunch of different um, uh, nutrient concentrations, nitrogen, phosphorus, and uh, carbon. So those were the kind of the the parameters that we use to um, look at the inputs of or trying to quantify the effects that hippo dung is having. So what you're doing here is you're looking at various points in the river, high flow, low flow, and even no flow in some of these pools. Uh, and then you, you look at lots of hippos versus no hippos or few hippos. And then you examine the water chemistry downstream. But I'm guessing you don't just do this over one time or one season and call it a day, right? Yes. So we this project started in um, 2000, uh, 2013. So we collected a lot of data in 2013 and then again in 2015 because we did want to see and make sure that these trends that we are observing are happening every single year. And um, that is what we actually found. We found similar trends in 2013 as well as in 2015. So because of this, uh, these effects being found across multiple years that had you know slightly different flow regimes, it's likely that the effects that we did observe are happening every single year. I see. Now, I imagine that the issue of water flow in these rivers is only going to get worse um, as time goes on. And um, as the population grows and, and the area begins to develop it economically, uh, and if there's one thing we know about economic development is that the more we develop, the more resources we consume. Now, do you predict that the strain on the river is going to get worse every year? Uh, it is getting worse. There is um, quite a lot of work being done to try and improve the flow. Um, trying to deal with a lot of the issues that is resulting in the decline of, of flow. So whether that is actually being successful or not is is debatable because every single year the, the river is still drying up. And um, even though they've had, there's been no real change in rainfall, the river is drying up. So it's, doesn't, it's not related to rainfall. It's related to a lot of the, the water abstraction further upstream that is resulting in this. Well, and I imagine that the problem here is not just affected by matters of biology and ecology and climate, but also by politics, right? I, I remember some pretty fierce international disputes about how much water is taken from the Nile before it reaches the Delta. And um, is this is the same thing playing out here, or do other countries seem to be uh, you know, working together well on this? And that's the difficulty with managing water availability and water quality is that these rivers do span across different countries. So quite often there does need to be an agreement across these, these two different um, countries. But most of the issues that um, result in, or cause this river to decline are actually occurring within Tanzania itself. Okay, well, how global is this phenomenon throughout Africa? Uh, there are lots of rivers, lots of watersheds, lots of people, lots of countries rapidly developing. Is this problem of water diversion peculiar to Tanzania, or do you predict that it's going on in other places as well? And I guess where I'm going with this is, uh, could we simply leave some rivers alone for a while and then get water from other places instead? Um, I, th I think you know, most of the rivers um, 
you know, we, we kind of did a, a large-scale analysis to look at how many of these um, watersheds across Africa are actually experiencing this, these declines in, in flow. And we actually found that, you know, about 94% of the hippo populations in Africa are, are in watersheds that are experiencing these kind of uh, unnatural alteration to, their, to river flow. So moving between different watersheds is, is probably not going to be um, a viable solution. It's more trying to figure out how we can... Because you know, humans, we require water as well, and hippos obviously will require water as well. So we're in direct competition with each other, which is you know unfortunate. And you know, we all know you know being the dominant species that it's likely that humans are going to win this uh, the competition. So we really need to try and balance our needs with the needs of um, not only hippos but these entire watersheds. Um, so it's really trying to balance a growing population the need for for water as well as the need to sustain the, this natural flow and that's that is really the 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 challenge a, a, a lot of monitoring of how much water is actually being extracted from these rivers is is going to be an important variable oh i see well in hearing about some of the ill effects of of the hippo dung i can just imagine some careless solutions being offered to just cull the hippos, at least in, in uh, certain places. Uh, but usually in ecology, aggressive solutions can often be worse than the problems, right? Yes, yeah. And I suspect that uh, hippos and even hippo dung is probably pretty important for these ecosystems. So just getting rid of them wouldn't be the answer, right? Yes, they do fulfill a, a, an extremely important role. And um, there have been some other studies that have shown that um, the input of dung it fuels you know, fish feed on it. It fuels entire um, um, aquatic food webs. Um, but not only that, they have uh, they fulfill an important role on uh, terrestrial landscapes as well by creating these grazing lawns that facilitates the grazing of a lot of other animals as well. So they are extremely important species. So um, just reducing their numbers is is probably not the or is not the best uh, solution. It's rather focusing on the much bigger problem of um, water, how to re- reduce our impact on, on these rivers. Right. But bigger problem means a bigger solution. Um, Now, uh, you said that the rivers almost completely dry up in the dry season, which means the water diversion must be pretty massive and that most of the water doesn't make it back into the watershed. What is the water being used for primarily? Specifically in the the, um, Great Raha River, a lot of the the water abstraction is for um, agriculture, specifically rice agriculture. And um, so that obviously requires a, a huge amount of water. So there have been efforts to divert some of this water into these um, rice paddies, and then once it's it's used, to divert it back into the river again afterwards, which has um, resulted in, in some success. Um, there's also been um, plans to build dams that are uh, separate from the river that are meant to store a lot of the rainwater um, and to use water from these dams exclusively for, for agriculture rather than um, collecting the water from the, the river directly. But unfortunately, there is a lot of um, water abstraction that is not being monitored. So it's hard to actually assess um, how much water is actually being removed. Now, uh, during the drought in California, I remember the conversations about how much water the almond farms consume, and they almost became a scapegoat of sorts of the whole problem. Are there specific crops in Tanzania that drive a lot of this water extraction? Um there are. Um, it's a, the, one of the main reasons why um, rice is um, such a favorable crop to grow there is that it's, it's a cheap crop to grow. Um, it doesn't need a lot. And a lot of these communities, uh, these rural communities, don't have access to a lot of resources um, where they can grow other crops. 
Um, it's mainly looking at um, rice and um, cattle production as well. Rice, rice, okay. And obviously, cattle also consume a lot of um, water from this from the river as well. So that's you know, it's it's the, probably the combination of those two that are having the uh, the biggest impact. Um, and it's it's also quite a dry climate, so it is limited to what crops they can actually grow. Now, is there a role for the international community here? I mean, the inter, uh, the underdevelopment of water infrastructure in Africa is surely part of the, the legacy of colonialism in the continent. So have there been efforts to invest in eco-friendly water infrastructure to help maintain these important rivers as the as the uh, local economies develop? Yes. Uh, currently, at the moment, there, there is uh, quite a large-scale project. Um, <clears throat> I think it's funded by the, the World Bank that is trying to directly address and you know mitigate some of these these issues um but um i think they they starting to build some weirs um within this river to try and um slow the the the, the flow of water through these systems because they they are receiving um enough rainfall it's just that this rainfall is kind of moving very quickly through the system it's a lot of it's being removed so they 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 do have enough rainfall to sustain flow it's just a lot of it's being removed so they're trying to build kind of this set of low dams within this um, river system that can hold a lot of this water back and ensure that there's always um, a, a steady flow throughout the dry season. And the natural flow of this river is somewhere between one to three cubic meters per second, which is not a lot, but ecologically that is still very significant and it can still maintain a lot of these natural processes that occur. Um, so hopefully these, these weirs will be able to maintain some kind of flow during the dry season. And what about the hippos themselves? What is their conservation status? They they are threatened, um, and their their populations are declining. Um, the main reason for that is because of um, reduction in suitable habitat, and um, that's reduction in suitable habitat is um, the aquatic habitat that they require, as well as the terrestrial um, habitat that they require. And so, the majority of hippo populations um, at the moment are really confined to protected areas. Um, there's a lot of um, <clears throat> human uh, hippo conflict, um, so that has really pushed them out of um, unprotected areas and really to only occur within these protected areas. Okay, Dr. Steers, what's next uh, on this project for you? What are you up to to either extend this work or look at other rivers? What, what, what are you up to next? The, we've looked at this, the project we're looking at now is looking at um, how um, this changing river flow influences the, the impacts that hippos have on, these, on the aquatic rivers. But the one part of this uh, story that we haven't really looked at is how does this reduction in, in flow and, and pool availability influence hippospatial movements? So that's, that's one aspect that we're looking at now. When you start reducing um, the habitat that hippos can live in, how do they move across um, the, the environment and, and how far away are they, they foraging at night? Um, and looking at how, just how much space they actually need because there's, there haven't been any uh, studies that have actually looked at this. And but being such an important species, it's quite, it's quite interesting that um, this very kind of basic information about how much space they need and, and their basic ecology is, is, is lacking. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us today. Dr. Keenan Steers is a scientist at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and this study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's been a pleasure talking today, Dr. Steers. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that does it for us. I'm Nathan Lentz, and from all of us at This World of Humans, have a great week. This has been another episode of This World of Humans, a podcast and science education initiative 
currently supported by Vision Learning and the PSC CUNY Research Award Program at the City University of New York. Science educators, don't forget to check out our website for a wealth of resources to help integrate this episode and its featured article into your science classroom. Find us at visionlearning.com slash TWOH.